Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3 as we continue our look at uh, this wonderful book. Romans chapter number 3. And uh, hopefully you have a prayer bulletin with an outline on the back. I don't see an usher necessarily ready in the back, but we certainly could. Uh, get your, oh, Brother Jim Garcia is ready. So if you need an outline, Brother Jim's making his way down. Just kind of raise your hand and we'll get you a prayer bulletin with an outline on the back. We'd love for you to follow along as we continue our study here uh, in Romans chapter Chapter number three, we have uh, begun last week in chapter or verse number 21 and looked at the first part of this section. Uh, We've come to understand, you see there on your outline, some things, first of all, and uh, we've come to understand Roman number one, God's wrath is now overshadowed by God's righteousness. Verse number 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now that's a great statement. God's righteousness uh, can be applied to our account. We saw these things real quick, and uh, as we went over last Wednesday, most of you were here, but for those who weren't, we saw these things at letter A, we saw the righteousness is only available apart from the law and without any merit on my behalf. And so I can't earn it. I can't gain it. This righteousness is merely uh, through Jesus Christ. And that really brings up letter B, right? This righteousness is applied to my account through faith. And we talked about how it's being marked, paid in full because of what Christ did on the cross. Let us see. We talked about this. This righteousness is universal in its availability. We talked specifically about the end of verse 22 when it says, For there is no difference. And really, verse 23, that we will often use it as a verse, a means by which to help someone understand that they are a sinner before God. Uh, really, the reason Paul put it in this passage was to explain, just as all are, with, uh, are sinners, so all can receive the righteousness of God. And that's a great truth. And so... Uh, Um, Letter D, we saw this righteousness came at a high price. We began just uh, looking on a surface level at verse 25, and that alludes and speaks of Christ's sacrifice for you and I. And then we came to letter E, and we made these uh, final observations, we might put it, or uh, lasting implications. Number one, if this righteousness is of God and empty of works, then it actually serves as the greatest assurance for every believer. If I don't have to earn it and I don't have to work to keep it, can I tell you, if it's all of God, you can be sure that God's going to keep you. And it's the greatest form of assurance for any of us as believers. Number two is this truth. And we saw it of this righteousness of God and empty of works. The good news is I can be saved now. I can be saved now. There's no working the rest of your life hoping you've done enough to get into heaven. If it is by faith through grace, then the truth is this. Any person can get saved now. Some of our missionary letters in that prayer bulletin you have speak of folks getting saved, trusting Christ. And I'm grateful that they don't have to write. A missionary doesn't have to write back to us and say, well, they're working on their salvation. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. No, they can write to us and say, listen, all the money that you have sent through faith promise is affected because people are trusting Christ today. And that's a great truth. And uh, if it was of works then it would take time. It would be a process and so forth. Number three, if the righteousness of God and empty of works, then all boasting, we look down at verse 27, uh, all boasting is eliminated. Paul's word is excluded, and all the glory belongs to God, as it should. As our Creator and our Savior, He has, uh, He is the one that orchestrates it, achieves it, and it's there for us. And so Paul, in this passage, is spending time. Now listen, let's get it. 
We spent two and a half chapters, and Paul has explained being in sin, that all are guilty before God, that the whole world, all our mouths may be stopped and so forth. Two and a half chapters. So let's understand as we begin here in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, what Paul is simply doing, he's building the case, and is is Paul's tendency, Paul is making it as robust as he can. He is adding layer by layer, he is building it up. Can I, can I encourage you, it's much like we talked about fattening a cow for slaughter. Kind of like fattening a pig. Maybe some of you have your own turkey you're growing for Thanksgiving, okay? And you want, that, you want that guy to eat and eat and eat to get bigger. Well, Paul treats these doctrines, these truths, much the same way. Day by day, or for instance in this, as he's teaching and writing letters, verse by verse, he's just adding to the bulk of our understanding. And he's building the case. And so sometimes it seems like, like Paul's just kind of saying the same thing. Well, honestly, he's adding layers to our understanding of the great doctrines and the great truths. He wants every mouth to be stopped again on every single one of these points. We'll get to it next week, but I can't, uh, I can't help but jump ahead. You know what's interesting? At least 10 times in the entire book of Romans, Paul asks a question and says, God forbid. <laughs> and it's interesting. We'll study a little bit more next week. The fact is this. Paul says that because he is trying to shoot down every argument. He's trying not to leave any loophole, anything that you could say or an argument that could be made or any question that could be asked. Paul is trying to answer every critic and every person that is legitimately, honestly seeking after God and seeking to know the truth. And I'll tell you, my friend, as we have seen in this book, I am excited and delighted that Paul is so thorough. Now, I'll tell you, if you have a doctor, you want him to be thorough, don't you? I do. If you have someone cooking for you, you want them to be thorough. You don't want undercooked food. And can I tell you, if someone is serving us the Word of God, we want them to be thorough. I'm grateful in Paul's addressing of these truths. He is thorough. So let's not think, well, man, isn't he saying the same thing? No, he, he is honestly adding layer by layer and being very thorough so we can understand. Paul speaks to this truth specifically, what the righteousness of God is and, and how it's described and what it provides for us in many of his letters. Hold your spot here. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I want you to see what else Paul writes about the righteousness of God in this passage. It's interesting because in Philippians chapter 3, if you remember the passage well, Paul is speaking of all the things that in the human realm he accomplished. As a Jew, as a, uh, as a lawyer, he accomplished many things. And so Paul is alluding to these things and we come to Philippians chapter 3. Notice verse number 8 of Philippians chapter 3. Again, familiar passage. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. What things is he referring to? Well, look up at verse 4. We're, we remember this. He's, he speaks of the confidence in the flesh. If any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, touching the righteousness which is in the law. Blameless. But notice what he says. Those things were gained to me, but I count those lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them worthless, but done that I may win Christ. Now notice this, verse number 9. Here is his ultimate statement. He says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, mm, but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by 
faith. A great statement. Paul, is ex- he said, I have exchanged the righteousness of the law, which we have found in Romans chapter 3 and earlier, to be hollow, to be vain, to be worth nothing. He exchanges that that he has earned for the righteousness of God. How? Through faith. And so what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 is nothing more than a personal testimony of what he himself has gone through. It's a great personal testimony, a personal witness to what he himself has gone forth and understood. So as we come to that, we want to see another contrast. The first we saw in the outline, God's wrath is overshadowed by this righteousness that he wrote up in Philippians chapter 3. Number 2, Roman number number 2, you see it. We'll expound a little bit later on it tonight as we get to one of the final points. But notice the statement here. Man's condemnation is now overshadowed by man's justification. So as God's wrath was overshadowed by God's righteousness now, as we come to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 and following, now we're going to see in these same verses that God, or man's condemnation, excuse me, is overshadowed by man's justification. I think we have in this passage presented to us three wonderful declarations concerning the righteousness of God. The first was found back in verse 21. In a sense, we've already covered it, so we won't say much about it either to, uh, except to identify that it's there. But verse 21, the first declaration we saw is this, about God's righteousness. It is yours through faith. We saw that in verse uh, 21 there, and uh, even, excuse me, even really verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, literally in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. And so through it's, it's through faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second one here that, that has also been shown and revealed to us, and it, it speaks of how it is accomplished more so. Look at verse 25 with me. Well, actually, back up. Let's read verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he explains that last statement. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, And here's one of our key words, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So immediately what we understand is this declaration of God's righteousness has to do with the simple fact that it is yours through Christ, through Christ and his work on the cross. Uh, The meat of the presentation found here in verse 25 gives us a unique description of this. What is it? It's that doctrinal terminology you find there, propitiation. Propitiation. What does that necessarily mean? Well, understand propitiation is a doctrinal term. I told you last week we get into some doctrinal terminology tonight, and here's one such word, propitiation. It's the idea of an atonement made by the shed blood whereby God is propitiated. Literally, He's appeased. His righteous and just demands for wrath and judgment and punishment are satisfied. In other words, it was the means, Christ was the means as the propitiation, the means of God's wrath and the penalty of sin being satisfied. It it was literally the vehicle by which our redemption was gained. And that is in Jesus Christ. Uh, He was set forth uh, to be propitiation for us. We see that throughout the Scripture. So understand it's an atonement. It's, it's an atonement that is purchased or made possible by the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, I like what one commentary said about it. This is what it said. The plain and evident sense of propitiation. Now, notice it. Is that a conciliating favor? 
Okay, old English spelling of favor, but conciliating favor and reconciling persons which were before at variance, at disagreement, had something to come between them. So to propitiate, therefore, is to restore that amity and friendship which had subsisted before the quarrel took place and thus make friends again. Such, in a very high degree, is the propitiation accomplished by Christ Jesus for his people. And hence, by the way, let me skip and go to the next thing for you. And hence, by the way of special emphasis, Christ himself is called the propitiation. For when sin had made a dreadful breach between man and God or God and man, Christ stood forth the propitiation as the propitiation and made, this is a quote from Colossians 1.20, and made peace through the blood of the cross. This doctrine was beautifully shadowed forth uh, in the Old Testament and accomplished under the new. Say, so what is he saying? What, what is he simply saying is propitiation really has two sides to it. Number one, he, Jesus Christ is the, uh, is the means by which God is appeased. In other words, the atonement is made. Uh, God is satisfied. That's a great word for it. He is satisfied with what Christ offered in his shed blood. And so if he is the propitiation, it means that God God is appeased, and then secondarily, it provides for the reconciling of the parties. Who are the parties? You and I and God. What separated us? Sin. So what had to be atoned for? The sin of all mankind. Jesus Christ had to pay that. Uh, propitiation, I think, is only mentioned four times in all the New Testament. Two of the other occasions are in 1 John. The first one is this, 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for what? Our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When we talked about it, that's one of the death knells or the nails in the coffins of Calvinism. And the reality is that he is the propitiation for who? The whole world. So it then enables what we sang about a few moments ago, whosoever will. So we come to understand that simple truth. The next one is in 1 John chapter number 4. Herein is love. And that's a great statement, a song by that name. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isn't that kind of, it, it goes right along with what John wrote in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is kind of the small epistle version of the same uh, verse. Herein is love. Not that we love loved God but that he loved us and how did he show it how did he demonstrate it that he sent Jesus Christ and here he says to be the propitiation for our sins to deepen and enlarge our understanding of it the same Greek word in Romans uh, the two words in uh, translated as propitiation in first John 2 first John 4 come from the same Greek word family as the one in Romans chapter 3. But that one in Romans chapter 3 is is used exactly the same way again in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse number 5. You don't have to turn there, but there it's translated as this. Understand it. Mercy seat. Mercy seat. It is a reference to the Old Testament uh, mercy seat. So let's broaden our understanding of that. Hold your spot here, Romans 3. Let's turn to Exodus chapter number 25. Hang with me. Okay, well, I know we're getting in a little deep. Hang with me. And I want you to see this truth. I think it's a great truth. We'll see from Exodus. As we understand that word propitiation is a word that also means mercy seat. 
And the two aspects about propitiation is both God being the propitiation, the atonement, but also being the vehicle by which you and I are reconciled to Almighty God. Notice at Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25, look at verse number 17. Exodus 25 and verse 17, we have the beautiful description of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that sits atop of it on in the tabernacle there of the Israelites. Verse 17, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I should give thee. Now notice it. Notice verse 22. Don't miss this, okay? And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee, from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which i give thee the commandment unto the children of israel if you know anything about the mercy seat on the day of atonement the yearly event within the israeli calendar the high priest would enter into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat sitting atop of it were located as that was the case that high priest would take in blood he would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat as a uh, temporarily uh, a temporary sacrifice sacrifice a temporary atonement literally is what some of the hebrew words are used to describe for his sins and sins of all the people and would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and that would in a sense looking ahead to christ's sacrifice atone for their sins or at least picture the atonement for their sins now notice what it said about the mercy seat what did god say would happen there on the mercy seat was the place where god would reside and he said he would do what Meet with you there. Now listen to me, friend. Don't miss it. So why is the similar word and similar understanding of the concept used in Romans chapter 3? Because I'll tell you, my friend, the only place that you will be able to meet God is through Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. He is literally the mercy seat. He is the place where the presence of God can meet the presence of a sinner. And though I do not have my sins with me because they are under the blood of Jesus Christ, my friend, there through Jesus Christ, our great mediator, is where you and I can experience the very presence of God. I tell you, my friend, it is a great truth that flows throughout the entirety of Scripture as Paul hits upon here in Romans chapter number 3. So what could we say? Well, to our designation on our account, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we said last week we could put a little stamp on there, God has in heaven, paid in full because of what Jesus Christ did. And uh, we can add to that, you know what, this simple statement on your outline there, satisfied completely and i spelled that completely wrong don't spell it like i spelled it up there goodness gracious that's the kind of day we had here at church satisfied okay i just invented a new word miss nancy that's pretty impressive Uh, thank you antonio all right so satisfied completely so not only in our account do we mark it paid in full but guess what satisfied completely remember i talked to you last week about that 
It isn't that, oh, our sins were just, okay, I'm going to pardon them. No, our sins were not pardoned. The reality was this, because when we think of a human concept of pardon, we overlook the sin. Our sin was never overlooked by God. The reality is Jesus Christ paid for it in full. The punishment, the penalty for sin, completely satisfied. Now, I'll tell you, my friend, I'd much rather be a person who has something paid in full, completely satisfied, than to be someone who things uh, is just overlooked. Let's bring it into common understanding. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of owing anybody anything. Do you? I don't like owing any creditor or mortgage company. Or I, don't like, I don't like to owe anybody anything. Now, think on this for a moment. Okay, I think we have to be very careful because I don't think it's good to say that we owe God anything. See, salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift. Now, do you walk away from your birthday party and you say, man, now I owe five, six, seven, eight people something? No, it's a free gift, right? If, if that's the case, then you have very bad family and friends. <laughs> You have to walk away owing them something for the gifts you receive. Now listen to me. Understand what we're talking about here. You don't owe God anything. God paid the penalty of your sin through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now that is not to say that we can't feel a sense of indebtedness. It's not to say that, that we can't say, wow, man, what he did for me moves me to live for him. But the reality is, if we think we owe God something, you know what creeps into the back of our minds? I have to pay God back. And we've said it before, you and I could never pay God back for what he did for us in gaining heaven and losing hell. So you and I, praise be to God and what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary, we don't owe God anything. The debt is taken care of. It's paid in full. God's wrath has been completely satisfied by the propitiation of Christ on the cross of Calvary, His sacrificial death. There's no debt on my account. There's nothing that I owe God. But we understand that the Bible teaches, and Paul himself says it, a person, a believer who understands what has been forgiven him, his account, his penalty paid in full, can't help but have a deep sense of gratitude, love, and indebtedness for God. See, I may not owe anything. I'm not going to get to heaven and say, okay, God, what do I owe you for my uh, for getting here? <laughs> you can't do that. You, after you're saved, you ought not to think, okay, now I've got to uh, live the rest of my life to pay God back. No, friend. He paid it all, as the hymn puts it. But I'll tell you, man, our love and gratitude for him ought to cause us to do all we can for him. Paul's life was a demonstration of that truth. So let's make sure we keep our theology correct and yet allow our Christian living to prove our love for him. I try to just, you say, okay, Pastor Henry, I get all that, but I don't understand it. Let's just define propitiation in a small statement, pithy statement, if you want to call it that. Spiritually speaking, what is propitiation? It's an atonement made to achieve reconciliation. 
Okay? So an atonement, a, a taking care of it, it atones for it, like that blood on the mercy seat. And what does it achieve? Reconciliation between me and God. God is propitiated by Christ on my behalf. And so he is appeased. His wrath is appeased. So that's propitiation. All right. Number two, the second, or number three, excuse me, the second declaration. The first declaration about God's righteousness is through faith. Uh, the second one was, uh, it's yours by Christ's work. He's the propitiation. Then we come to the letter C. The declaration concerning God's righteousness is this. It's yours, and it's yours in redemption remission and justification okay some big words to write amen okay redemption remission and justification i told you we get into these doctrinal terms and here they are in this passage okay so redemption remission and justification so what is this final declaration concerning well it's all about what the righteousness of god accomplishes for you and i we might say the benefits of it. What does it do? What did it do for me as, as Christ earned it? I trusted it by faith. Christ, it's His work. He's the propitiation. And as such, what did it accomplish for me? What does it bring to the table, in a sense, we might say for me? Look down to verse 26 back here in Romans 3 and notice what it says. It, really, this gives us the idea of the passage. To declare, I say. So we see it's a declaration, right? To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, really, this idea of the benefits goes back to verse 24. Being justified, we, we, we talked about the word freely last week, so we won't deal with that, but being justified freely by his grace. Notice the statement through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's step back a second. Let's define redemption as we did propitiation. Redemption is simply this. It's delivering, especially by the means of paying a price. Delivering, especially by the means of paying a price. In that day, we know there were slaves and those prisoners taken captive. Well, this Greek term was used commonly in that day to describe a ransom that would be paid for someone who was taken captive. For instance, today, there's pirates, there's terrorists and things that, that steal people and take them and kidnap them and, and then want to contact their family and say, pay us this money, right? Pay us a ransom. So that's what the Greek term literally means here. It's the pain of a ransom to free someone who who's a prisoner of another, a captive. It also means this. It is the, uh, the term for the price that was paid to free a slave from his master. Free a slave from his master. Now, we understand in Romans, Paul gets into it in Romans 5, 6 and following, that before we came to Christ, you and I were slaves to sin. We were, we were servants of sin. Well, that's why he then encourages us, you are no longer a slave and a servant to sin, but by God's grace, you now can become a slave and servant to Jesus Christ, to righteousness. He says that yield ye your members as members of righteousness. He says it. Paul's, Paul's going to get to that point and explain it. So that's where this term even plays into it. It literally, if you think about it, if it's paying a ransom, if it's paying a price, it foreshadows what we get into Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the... Okay, let's try that again. Romans 6, 23. We probably know this, okay? Let's try it one more time. For the wages excellent man for the wages of sin is death okay but the gifts of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord so the wages of sin the price the the, the cost the penalty of sin it's literally what paul gets to in romans chapter 6 verse 23 all right or, or 323 whatever okay and the reality is this 
We get to that, and what's he saying? Aha, you've been redeemed. You've been purchased. The price, the ransom, has been paid for you. You are, as we might use the term, you are redeemed. I stand redeemed, as the hymn says it. Back in 1915, there was a theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary. If you never thought Princeton had one, they did. All right, Princeton, if we think of today, and not being exactly a place of great doctrine, amen? And reality is, back in 915, there was one. His name was Benjamin Warfield. We would disagree with him on a couple of things. And reality is, though, uh, he knew the Bible in some ways. And so he would often preach in their chapels. 915 was beginning the change of many of our colleges around that time, that era, those decades. And the fact is this. Back in that day, he preached to an un- incoming group of students there in, their chapel, in that chapel Princeton. And as these new students had arrived, he was preaching and he decided to preach on two terms, redeemed and redeemer. Jesus Christ is our redeemer and we who put our faith and trust in him as being redeemed. And he began to preach on it and speak about it. And he basically said this, and I'll, I'll certainly, his point was that the title of redeemer is probably the title of Christ that is most precious and intimate for us as believers. That he is our redeemer from the Old Testament, a redeemer kinsman. He, he's purchased us. We were on the chopping block or the selling block of sin. And Jesus Christ came along and he paid the ransom, the price for each one of us. And he put it this way in his message. He said this, it gives us that term redeemer. It gives us expression, not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from Jesus, but also of our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. The term redeemer, the title is a name specifically of the Christ of the cross. I was listening to something this week, and they made the point that uh, no other, no other so-called God, prophet, whatever, has ever died for sinners. Jesus Christ alone. And that term entitled Redeemer is alone His, the perfect Lamb. He goes on, he said this, whenever we pronounce it, the cross uh, is placarded uh, before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance not only that Christ has given us salvation but that he paid a mighty price for it to be our redeemer shedding his blood and dying upon the cross of Calvary it's interesting he he went on in this message and as part of showing the the, the students these young people college students at Princeton University trying to show them and demonstrate to them that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. He pulled out the very hymn book that Princeton used. And you would recognize many of the hymns that they used even back then in 1915. And he pointed to 28 hymns that used the term Redeemer or spoke of us being redeemed by Jesus Christ. Do you think you'd find that hymn book at Princeton today? Do you think they'd push that? He also further went along and he said, now let's look at some hymns that have the word ransom or ransomed in them. He added a whole nother 25 hymns that spoke of us being ransomed by Jesus Christ or him paying the ransom. You say, okay, pastor, what was the point of Benjamin Warfield's uh, message and sermon there? He got up and as he was concluding the message, he said this. He said, I believe the term redeemed and the title of Christ, Redeemer is dying a death today. 
That people have lost sight, 1915, of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. And that by our lack of explaining it and teaching what the term means, that we are, as he put it, assisting in uh, the deathbed of that word. And he just simply concluded this. He goes, and could you imagine preaching this at Princeton? He said this. He said, so the first question for you is this. Have you settled in your minds, is Christ truly your Redeemer? Have you embraced and realized that He is your Ransomer? Man, wouldn't you love that to be preached on the College of Princeton today? You love that because He's saying, listen, this term, this idea of being redeemed, it is greatly important. And that was His point. You know, in a spiritual sense, you and I legally stand here redeemed. How? Through the righteousness of God afforded to us through Christ's work. So we would define the idea of redemption, of being redeemed in this term. A simple statement to parallel that of propitiation. We would say it this way. Spiritually speaking, what is redeemed or redemption? It is a price paid for the deliverance of a sinner. So when we speak of redemption, when we speak of being redeemed, it's the idea that Jesus Christ paid the price so that you and I could be delivered from sin as sinners. That's redemption. We've been bought. We've been ransomed. But there's more about this righteousness of God to be appreciated. Notice the next term. It's found there in verse 25. Right after he says this, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. So to declare, here's the declaration. Again, second part of it, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So we look at this interesting word, remission. You notice it here. It literally means a passing over. A passing over. No doubt in some of your well-versed minds about the Bible, it kind of triggers a couple things. First of all, we want to see these two things about this truth. First of all, it's connected in this verse to the word forbearance. Forbearance. That's a word which is a reference to God's great patience and mercy in allowing sins of the past to go unpunished for a time. Temporarily, of course. The penalty left unpaid for a time. In other words, temporarily passing over that sin for man, men and all of mankind to avail themselves of God's grace and for the great plan of man's redemption to play out. So think of it this way, okay? Yes or no, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, would God have been just in killing mankind? Yeah, they sinned, right? What's the penalty of sins? Death. <laughs> All right. Cer- certainly spiritual death, but also the reality of physical death. God told him that's what's going to happen. You shall surely die when you eat of it. So God would have been just for ending mankind right after Adam and Eve sinned. That, that would have been just. That would have been fair. Okay. Our kids like to say that's not fair, but that's fair. <laughs> if, if, if life were fair, you and I would be in hell right now. That's fair. In our common understanding of that terminology. I love telling that to teenagers and children. That's fair. You don't want fair. I don't want fair. Do you want fair? I don't. I want mercy. I want God's grace in my life. So what's fair is that. It would have been fair. It would have been just for God after Noah and the people. and the, It would have been fair for God to use the flood to annihilate everybody. That would have been fair and just. God would have been just in doing that. 
Many times later on when, when man did that which was evil in God's sight and uh, all the wicked imaginations of his heart, there have been times that God could have erased mankind off of the face of the earth and he would have been just because of their sin. But I am sure thankful that the forbearance of God came flowing his patience to say, okay, I have a plan for the redemption of mankind, and it involves the remission of sins. The passing over, the penalty and punishment for a short time, and we'll see the second part here in a moment. He had a plan for it. Now, let's think personally. Were there times in our lives <laughs> that God would have been just in ending our lives because of our sin? Yeah, all of us. I didn't get saved until I was six years old. I'll tell you right now, by age two or three, God would have been just in taking me off this earth. I'm sure I lied. I'm sure I did different things. I, I took things that didn't belong to me, and I may have tried to beat up my brother, though it probably ended up the other way, since he was bigger. But reality was, I probably tried some things that were sin. I probably did some things that were sin. Not probably. I'm sure I did. And the reality is, God would have been just to remove me. But I sure am thankful for God's mercy and grace and forbearance that he passed over the full penalty, full penalty of my sins until I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And when I came to put my faith and trust in Christ, when you came to put your faith and trust in Christ, the second truth, the second part of this comes shining through. It's simply this. Now, Jesus Christ is our one and only Passover lamb. Passover lamb. As the blood was applied to the doors, can I tell you, my friend, the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to our account through faith. And now that punishment, the, the deserved penalty is no longer ours. It's been paid in full. It's been completely satisfied by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. And praise be to God, just as that Passover lamb in Jewish tradition was killed every year and the blood used to signify what Christ, what God had done back in Egypt. And Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. It's a great truth tying in these two truths together. You see, that Redeemer who shed His blood for me uh, was pictured in that Jewish lamb. In punishment and in penalty, my sins are gone off of my account, forever removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, this is how we would say it is. We would define it this way. What is this idea of remission of sins? What is the idea that the passing over of sins penalty, certainly temporarily, based upon the merit of the Passover lamb? And that would be forever. <laughs> so he... he Passing over, remission of sins. He, he has shown grace and mercy to bring us to the point where we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then based upon the merit of the Passover lamb, praise be to God, it's paid for and completely satisfied. And that's when we read of remission of sins. That's literally what Paul is pointing out. Now, notice this verse. You're probably familiar with it. We're moving quickly along and we're almost done but notice this verse john chapter 3 verse 18 it is quickly becoming one of my favorite to use in witnessing to folks and sharing with them it says he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god this brings us back to our Roman numeral number two, our title. Man's condemnation. In fact, every person today, you've already made the choice. Either you believe in Christ or you have it. Either you're not condemned or you're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
So we're condemned already. But man's condemnation is now overshadowed, as we have seen it here, by this wonderful term. See, there is a legal standing that as we exit Romans chapter 3 and and 2 and 1, we come out of there, as we've seen this be a court case, we come out with a legal standing uh, that we're guilty. We are condemned by our lack of faith. We stand guilty in our sins, and we haven't trusted in Christ yet uh, for the remission of sins. But the righteousness of God, as we come to trust in faith, it does something to our judicial standing before God. Many of your Bibles, many of you maybe have a school field or something like that. At the beginning of verse 21, they sometimes put a little uh, description in verses of the next section of verses. And you'll notice, what's the verse? The word, justification. Justification. That is really what he uses the next couple chapters in Romans to describe this legal standing that we find in the righteousness of God. Justification. It's an appropriate term that Paul uses time and time again. It's not just a doctrinal term. You say, yeah, Pastor, I've heard of this doctrinal term before. It is. But it's also very much a legal term. Is condemned a legal term? It sure is. Just the same way justification as condemnation is, is a legal term. Let's throw out a common definition. There's many definitions and as simple as just as if I never sinned to uh, something like this or even greater. But let's put it this way. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner to be righteous in Christ on the basis of of Christ, I added a the there, forgive me, a basis of Christ's finished redemptive work. Okay, so that's a little bit longer of a definition, but it's a pretty good one. The act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner to be righteous in Christ on the basis of Christ's finished redemptive work. Such a definition agrees with what we've already discussed about the righteousness of God. Notice it, it's an act. This is so crucial justification is an act it's a done deal it's a declaration of god that you are righteous that you're just before god that his wrath has been completely satisfied it's not a process sanctification on the other part is a process you and i becoming more like christ and what happens in our sanctification well it can change from day to day in fact today you may be more like christ than you were yesterday you ought to be right But some of us, you may have backslid a little bit. Some sin got in, some flesh took over, and you yielded to the flesh before you yielded to the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden today, we're not as far as long in our sanctification as we were yesterday or last week because we've given in to the flesh. Can I tell you, my friend, I sure am thankful that justification isn't like sanctification. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, the reality is this. When you trusted Jesus Christ, you were declared righteous by God. As the judge, he hit the gavel and he said, listen, based upon your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and more importantly about what he did on the cross of Calvary, the righteousness of God is applied to your account. The sins are paid in full, completely satisfied is my wrath. Enter heaven. It's a done deal. It's in the record book. 
It doesn't change. It doesn't ebb and flow. It's not a process, and I sure am thankful for that. It's all of God, and it's none of man. I can't declare myself to be justified. Only God can do that. It is a declaration that we are justified, that before God, in His eyes, in His uh, his courtroom, our sins have been replaced with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here's the great news. It is a record in heaven that cannot be changed. It cannot be repealed, and it cannot be revoked it is a done deal it is a declaration that is not taken back it's a lasting and powerful in that way and through it all even verse 24 and verse 26 we are reminded it is by grace how would we just use a little statement to describe this idea of justification as we've barely scratched the surface we'd say this justification is a declaration of our righteous standing before a holy and just God. I like it how that verse said it in verse 27 or 26 to declare I say at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? He is the justifier. He makes just. He declares righteous those that believe in Jesus Christ. You say what's the big deal? Why is that so important? Well, thousands of years before Paul wrote Romans, there was a guy that you know very well and he asked a question. He said this, How can mankind be just before God? You know him. His name was Job. He asked it in Job chapter 9 and verse number 2, the last part. Here's what he said. But how should man be just with God? Paul answers it here in Romans chapter 3. It's been revealed. It's been manifested. And by God's grace, my friend, it's been declared. And you and I can declare it to one another. What's the answer? It's found in verse 28. Let's look there. He says, in conclusion, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by, what's the next word? Faith. Is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. What is that telling us? It's all of him. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is our redeemer. And praise be to God, you and I are justified by what God did. We'll pick up here later next week and we'll see in the next couple examples, a couple things that he explains about this justification as we stand before God. Appreciate your attention. I, I know it was rather deep tonight, but you did great. And if you have any questions, go ask my wife.